is there a ninth beatitude? I opened the series on the beatitudes saying that there were nine of them. It is true that blessed are shows up nine times in the first part of Matthew chapter 5, but is there really a ninth beatitude? Matthew 11 and 5, 11, and 12 says, Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in, is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. While it seems obvious, it is worth pointing out how different this is from previous blessings. First, Jesus shifts from unspecified people who embrace a spiritual reality like meekness or mercy to the much more personal you. We know for sure this you refers to at least the four disciples Jesus gathers in Matthew chapter 4, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. But given that there's a crowd following and listening to Jesus, it's hard to believe he limits his intent to just them. Whatever the case, the same directed you appears in the next two verses where Jesus says you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. Moreover, Jesus changed the flow of the saying. If Jesus kept the same speech pattern, he would have said, Blessed are you when people revile you, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. But instead, he adds two negative statements followed by two positive statements. The negative statements foreshadow, among other things, Jesus' second major teaching, the missionary discourse in Matthew chapter 10. The positive statements draw back to everything the people just heard in the blessings first given. So, is this a ninth beatitude? Maybe. But if it is, it is not a summary or closure of one lesson before moving on to another. Rather, is it a transition that links the beatitudes to everything that follows. That is a point worth emphasizing. Jesus' next words telling us we are salt and light are memorable. Something about them is powerful and affirming, even if we're not totally clear on what it means. Even if we did not have subheadings and, and all the headings dividing up Bibles, these words would, would leap off the page at us and invite us to consider them in isolation. This is especially true in a culture where we get news from headlines and philosophy from bumper stickers. I'm not sure how many times I have engaged in group discussions on what it might mean to be salt. Typically, these conversations begin with explorations on ancient uses of salt. We notice how it adds flavor to food. There's also the use of salt as a preservative. It's not uncommon to talk about salt's role in religious ceremonies. And all of this is fine. The problem is what happens next. These groups begin to debate how Christians might add flavor to society. Some will toss out how the morality of Christians is a social preservative. Others will simply apply our modern idea of salt of the earth and assume that Jesus meant everyday hardworking people. In essence, they point to the Protestant work ethic. But you know what I never recall coming up in one of those discussions? The idea that the Beatitudes tell us exactly what it means to be salt. One of my seminary professors who taught Greek crafted a special desk for students who engaged in this kind of imaginative interpretation. He called it the hermeneutical harness. 
Hermeneutics is just a, a fancy word for interpretation. But the desk, on the desk itself, he bolted a Greek Bible. When a student sat at the desk, he put a, he put a headpiece on them, and this headpiece connected to a pulley system. So when he pulled, the headpiece would guide the student's head from looking up to the clouds back to the text. I like to think that these verses, whether they're a ninth beatitude or not, are written a written version of a hermeneutical harness. They aim to link the beatitudes to everything that follows. The beatitudes are not the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. They are its foundation.